Thank you, Michael. And it's a long passage, so if you've got your Bible in front of you, you turn to page 306. There you'll find 2 Samuel, and we'll find chapter 7, which is God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in the house of Cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a good rod, wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? 
And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for your sake of your word and according to your will. You have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving our nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt, you have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then the people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. And may the Lord bless us this reading from his holy word. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us and the time we have now to consider the things of your word. We thank you that as your people you promise uh, to speak to us through your word. You speak, uh, you promise to shape and change our very lives as your word engages with our hearts and our minds. And so we pray that uh, your spirit would do that work within each one of us today, help us to understand your word rightly, uh, and we pray that you would apply it to our lives that we'd be able to respond in ways that honour our Lord and Saviour. We pray it in his name. Amen. The story of the Bible is an epic saga. I think it's a little bit like a book series that covers generations and eons, something like perhaps the Chronicles of Narnia. I think most of us are probably pretty familiar with that series. Put your hand up if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, or at least watched the movies. Well, some of them, they haven't finished them off yet. Yeah, but uh, it's a, a, a story, a tale that um, spans generations, even hundreds of years. Um, perhaps Star Wars is more your thing. Um, one of these stories that traces over generation upon generation, uh, 
you see over time and through the different episodes and stories, different characters come and different characters go. Within the grand narrative, there are these unique stories, but each episode, each movie, each book, uh, they build together to form a single story, a history. And the story of the Bible is a bit like that. Um, it's a story of God's plan for this world. And it's a story that gradually unfolds in human history as we see God reveal and fulfil his plans for us, his plan of salvation. And along the way in the Bible we see many different characters come and go, but of course there are some key figures and some significant turning points within the story. And so we think of people like Abraham and Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament, they loom large. There are those key moments like the flood, the exodus of God's people out of Egypt, God giving his law to his people at Mount Sinai. And the big turning points in God's story usually arrive in the form of a big promise from God. God makes promises to particular people at particular moments and they have the effect of shaping and directing the course and story from that time on. Promises like the ones God made to Abraham when he promised him that from him uh, he would make a great nation and that nation would be God's people. Well, we come to one of those moments in the story today. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see another one of these big developments in the story of the Bible as we see God make these incredible promises to King David. God promises that David's royal line is going to be established and established forever. And these promises that we're looking at today will come to shape the story of the Bible from that point on. And, a spoiler alert, um, these promises set the scene for the coming of David's descendant, the future king, Jesus. Now last week, uh, Reuben took us through the first five chapters of 2 Samuel. And we saw David's ascent to the throne. We saw him become established as the unrivaled king over all of Israel. He conquers the city of Jerusalem, claims that as his new capital. Um, and in chapter 6, which is in our chapters today, but we're not going to look at it. You can read it yourself if you haven't yet already. Uh, in chapter 6, we see David bring the ark of God into the city. Um, it doesn't go smoothly at first, but eventually the ark arrives in the city of Jerusalem. As chapter 7 comes around in the story, it seems that a few years have gone by and David has established himself. He's built himself a comfy new palace to live in. Everything's looking pretty rosy. But there's something that's been troubling David. We read about it in those first couple of verses there in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So here's David sitting in his luxurious home, a magnificent palace of cedar, but he's not comfortable. He's not comfortable with the disparity that he sees between his lodgings and that of the ark. And so he forms a plan to do something about that. 
David wants to build God a permanent house, a temple. And this proposal from David becomes a catalyst for two incredibly significant developments in the story of the Bible. Uh, the first has to do with the establishment of the temple itself, but the second has even more significance. As God makes this series of promises to David about his kingship, these promises have implications not only for David and his family, but as we'll see, God's plan of salvation for the whole world. Now there in verse 3 we see that the prophet Nathan kind of gives David a premature green light to go ahead with whatever he's planning to do. Uh, clearly God's been blessing David and is with David, and that's what's in Nathan's mind. Uh, but God has other ideas. And that night he sends the prophet Nathan a message to give to David. God tells David through Nathan that he is not going to be the one to build a temple for God. God isn't opposed to that idea. Uh, within God's promises, he explains that a temple will be built, not by David himself, but by one of David's descendants. In fact, David's son, who would succeed him. Go down to verse uh, 11 and have a look at what God says to David there. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice a little play on words there, how David wanted to build God a house, but in verse 11, God tells David that he's going to make him a house. And in Hebrew, just as it is in English, this word for house can mean either a building, a physical building, or a dynasty. Like we might talk about the British royal line as the house of Windsor. And so God is saying to David, you're not going to build me a house, a temple, but I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a royal line. So what's now on view is not just David's own rule as king, but this permanent establishment of a royal line through David. Yes, David's not going to be building the temple. That job's going to go to Solomon. But the promises that God makes to David here go way beyond anything that's going to happen in his lifetime or Solomon's. See, after what had happened with King Saul, David may well have been a bit concerned that he was going to be a, a one-generation wonder as a king. But God specifically promises him here that that's not the way it's going to be. Skip on down to verse 15. God, speaking of David's son here, says, My love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I remove, whom I remove from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Not only will David have a son to succeed him on the throne, but David will always have a descendant who sits on the throne of Israel. David's line and his kingdom are going to be established for all time. This is a pretty big deal. God is talking here about something far greater than the nation of Israel itself. Something far greater even than the kingdoms of David and of Solomon, as great as they were. These verses are speaking about a kingdom that God will send some years down the track. A kingdom that another descendant of David will bring. 
And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we find the writers there picking up on this language, picking up on these promises that God made all these years before. One of them, I'll just give you one, comes from the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, here are the, the words of the angel speaking to Mary when she finds out that she's going to bear God's son. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Notice how the angel here uses that language of the promises that God made to David. This promise that God makes to David, we see here, is ultimately about Jesus, the one who is called the Son of the Most High, the one who takes the throne of his father David, the one who establishes a kingdom that will last forever. What was promised to David, we see fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Now, I'm pretty sure David wouldn't have had much of a clue about any of this. Uh, he certainly understood that God was making a promise that he was going to keep. He prays that much in his prayer. He certainly understands enough to be overwhelmed with, with gratitude and to wonder and marvel at the promises of God. But he only has the promises. We have seen the fulfilment of them. So he has us for a plan. God would one day send a descendant of David. He would be far more than David's son. He would be God's own son. And this son would come to give his life in our place, to conquer sin, to conquer death, to set us free, to be raised again as the ruler of the world. This one would be both a king and a saviour. And all those who put their trust in him will find both forgiveness and new life as a child of God. All those who put their trust in this king will belong to a kingdom that lasts for all eternity. If you've forgotten how to marvel and how to wonder at God's plans, take another look. We should never tire of praising God for who he is. Praising God for what he's done for us, what he has done in this world to bring us peace with him. Praise God for the fact that his plan means that you can be a part of his people. At uh, most construction sites that you see around the place, they usually put up a picture of what the finished product is going to look like. I think it's supposed to create a sense of anticipation about what the completed building will eventually look like as, well, at certain points, it's not too flash. I think the kingship of David does something similar for us in the story of the Bible. As we look at David and his reign and David as a, a man, it's supposed to, for us, create a sense of anticipation about the king who would come after him in his line. A king who is like David, who will bring peace and who will rule with kindness. Because in the chapters that follow these promises that God makes to David, uh, we see the high point 
of David's reign as king. We see that the nation of Israel expanded, its borders expanded. We see it made secure and prosperous under David's rule. And the rest and the peace that God has promised his people finally becomes a reality for them. See, ever since the people of Israel have entered into the promised land, they've been in a constant state of conflict with their neighbours. The Philistines, the Moabites, all these nations around them and among them have been a thorn in their side. But hundreds of years before, God had made a promise to his people. He promised them that this wouldn't always be the case. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God promised his people, he says, You will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. The reality is, that promise has not yet been fulfilled. God's people have never really experienced that rest. They've never really been able to live in safety. Back in chapter 7, among all the promises that God made to David about his future and the dynasty, God also made a promise about what he was going to do during David's lifetime. So in chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, if you have a look at that, 2 Samuel 7, God said and promised to David there, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God's promises that the nation is going to be made secure are going to find their fulfilment under David's reign. God says that I'm going to bring rest, I'm going to bring you peace. And that's exactly what we see transpire over the next few chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. Particularly in chapter 8, we read a record of David's victories in battle. We read about David defeating his enemies in every direction. It describes victories to the north and the south, to the east and the west. And it's a pretty harsh reading, much like some of the violent action we saw last week. Much of it seems too brutal for our sensibilities. You see David executing soldiers, he's subjugating other nations. And we might, some of us, struggle to see how this is a good thing. It all seems a little unsavory. But what David's doing here is actually completing a job that the previous generations of God's people had failed to do. When God first sent them into the land, his people didn't obey what God instructed them to do. They didn't drive out the nations who lived in the land. And because of that, those nations have been a thorn in Israel's side ever since. Not only they kept keep attacking God's people, but they continually lead God's people astray as Israel adopts the religious practices and the idol worship of the nations around them. And so David is presented to us here as a, a saviour from all of that. One who will rescue Israel from their enemies. One who brings this peace, this security that God has long promised his people. So that finally, after hundreds of years of this struggle, God's people will come to enjoy the blessing of peace, the rest that God promised them. But David, in this story, is 
more than a warrior, more than a military general. We also see another side of him in these chapters, a, a picture of a king who rules with kindness. We saw this last week as David refused to take revenge on his enemies. What we have in David is a different kind of king. You might say he's a shepherd king who cares for his flock. And in chapter 9, we've got this fantastic little story where we see this on display. Uh, It begins there, chapter 9, verse 1, with David asking a question. He says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was David's best friend, son of Saul, who fell in battle. And David wants to show kindness to the descendants of Saul. And so he asks his aides, is there anyone still around that I can do this for? And this in and of itself is an unusual question. Because in the ancient world, when a new king came to the throne, the first order of business was to tidy things up, so to speak. Usually to get rid of all the people who were part of the old regime, who might have had some claim to the throne. And all those people are usually put to death or sent off into exile somewhere. And so it would have been no surprise to anyone if David had have done the same to all Saul's descendants. And David might have even had more reason to do that, given what we saw unfold last week with one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, who in fact rose up against David, claimed the north as his own, and the country was plunged into a bloody civil war for seven years. So in some ways it might have made sense for David to go after potential rivals for his throne, but that's not what we see happen. David finds out uh, from a man named Ziba, one of Saul's former servants, that there is in fact a descendant, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. He's still alive, but it seems like he's kind of in hiding um, because he has to be found uh, and brought to the palace. We learn here too that Mephibosheth, or a reminder I should say, that Mephibosheth is crippled in both feet. We know that from a story that's recorded earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Um, His nurse dropped him as uh, they were fleeing their enemies. Uh, As an infant he was dropped and he was crippled in both feet. And it seems like Mephibosheth since then has been hidden away somewhere in the kingdom, keeping his head down, you might say. Well, David finds him and summons him to Jerusalem. Pick up the story there in verse 6 of chapter 9. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, Mephibosheth would have had good cause to be afraid. Every reason to think that David meant him harm, but David wants to do no such thing. He acts towards Mephibosheth in a way that probably no one was expecting, especially the man himself. And we see David showing great kindness and generosity. He gives back to Mephibosheth all of the land that belonged to his grandfather Saul, arranges for him to receive an ongoing income from that so that his family is going to be provided for. And then, in perhaps the most amazing thing of all, David arranges for Mephibosheth 
to live with him in the palace and to be treated like one of his own sons. David invites him to eat at his own table as a part of the family. Now in this act of kindness, we see David foreshadowing that descendant who will come after him. David provides us with a picture of what a king ought to be. A saviour who brings peace. A shepherd who loves his flock. With David, as it will be with Jesus, greatness in this kingdom is shown through mercy. Strength is shown through compassion and kindness. And for those of us who by rights deserve nothing from the hand of our God, we too should remember that we have been shown great kindness. Jesus has invited us to feast at the table of the King. Jesus has adopted us into his royal family. There's a couple of great verses in the New Testament that talk about this. 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us we should be called children of God and that is what we are. In Paul's letter to Titus he writes when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done but because of his mercy. Here is the kindness and the love of our God that those who were once his enemies are brought into the family. What we see foreshadowed in David, we see perfected and completed in Jesus. And just as David was used as an instrument of God to bring peace to God's people, so too does our king. So Colossians puts it this way. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. In our king, God has brought us peace God has brought us rest. What greater peace can a person have than to know that they are at peace with their maker? To know that in the eyes of God, you are now as Paul writes there, without blemish and free from accusation. To be reconciled to God. Peace has been made through the blood of Christ. We can rest in that. Rest in that and give thanks to God for the love, for the kindness that He has lavished on you through His Son. And let's be people who honour and praise our God with our lips and with our lives for the great peace and security that are now ours because of our King, our Shepherd. And our Saviour. Julianne's going to lead us in prayer.
please join me as we pray to you. Dear Lord God, thank you for showing your greatness and your goodness to us in so many ways. Thank you that the pupil free day went so well. And we pray that you will bless the children who came along on that day as they grow and help them to come to know you better and better. We particularly pray today for Merv and for his family. We ask that you'll be with them this week. Please surround them with your comfort and your love. And may Merv know your presence in a very, very real way. Thank you for loving all that you have made, for being near to all who call on you, and for watching over us. We are grateful that your plans are bigger and better than any we could imagine, and that while our time on earth is finite, we know that we are a part of your kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. Heavenly Father, don't let us forget the price it cost your son to conquer sin and conquer death so that we can be part of this kingdom. All we can say is thank you for your great kindness and all we can do is give you our lives. We thank you for this glorious day and our time together today. Amen.